I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Can you believe this is the 90th episode of the podcast? In honor of this past week's holiday, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in weekly and for supporting us. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Nika Rabinowitz of Fiber House Collective, a collective that partners with farmers, artists, designers, fiber folks, and scientists to explore from farm to fabric and then back to farm. They have a number of interesting research projects, such as dyeing fibers with mushrooms and extracting pigment from plants and food waste, as well as decomposting textile waste. Hello, Nika. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us how you found your way into the world of textiles and farming? Yeah, so I went to school at Parsons and studied fashion design. I got there and quickly realized, uh uh-oh, there's so many problems in this industry, and I felt overwhelmed by, you know, both the ethical issues and the issues the way we were extracting from the planet. And I just didn't know what to do at first. So I decided to go to the source. And that led me to farming and to the seed to um, fabric movement. And I started connecting with local fiber farmers in the area and getting wool from them and then creating textiles, both felting and weaving. And then I also got into natural dyeing that way. And I just fell in love with the process and really fell in love with the hands-on Um, connection to my materials and realize this is something that, you know, needs to be transferred over into the industry in ways that we can really, if we can reconnect with nature, we can kind of solve some of our big problems. Did you learn most of your fiber and making skills while you studied at Parsons? So actually a lot, I I didn't really (laughs) learn that much about textiles when I was there. We were studying garment construction, but it was through this connection to farmers and different uh, mentors in that space that I was able to learn almost on my own. So in some ways, I'm self-taught in a lot of the textile techniques I use and um, really kind of work on this idea of this inherent creativity and unlocking this um, aspect of play in my work. And I think that kind of strengthens in some ways my connection and this partnership with nature and working with textiles. Hmm. It's interesting to hear you talk about learning about the fashion industry and then sort of switching gears into focusing on natural dyeing and farming. What was your program when you were in school? Did you study fashion design or integrated design? Yes, I was in the traditional fashion program. And I think there was a, you know, I, it, I struggled to find my place in that program. But then after I graduated, I, I, well, I created this thesis while I was there that was creating um, 10 garments and accessories within a 150-mile radius, seeing if it could be done. It was this proof of concept for myself. And that's also what allowed me to make these connections. And I realized that it was possible. And when I graduated, I connected with this space that was around at the time called Manufacture New York. It was this fashion innovation hub. And I created this farm to fabric symposium there where I connected Mm -hmm. a lot of the dyers and the farmers and the mills that I had been working with and want to share this with the industry and share this with other students and professors and just, you know, curious consumers and designers. And it was an amazing experience. And it was really through this Um, education initiative that I saw this is maybe the way that we can impact um, more change and create change together. Can you talk about what your thesis 
entailed? Like, what was it like making garments within a 150 foot radius and maybe some of the challenges that you faced? Yeah, I mean, I color was part of it, right? This is, I was only able to work with local plants, native plants or plants that I could find or food waste and different things that were around me. I couldn't, you know, source um, pigments from far away if they weren't being grown by a nearby farmer. And that really changed my my color palette and also my value standards. I realized that, you know, a lot of what's dictated to us as what's beautiful is, you know, what we see in media, but that's not necessarily what makes the most sense in terms of, you know, the most sustainable or best thing that we can do. And I really changed the way that I thought about what is beautiful and what, you know, what I could make. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned sort of the confines of working with natural fibers because when I did my thesis, I was in the same predicament where everything that I ended up making was a neutral or white or off-white. I did a little bit of dyeing with purple cabbage, but it was mostly raw cotton. So I completely understand where you're coming from. And I think that in... Ironically, a lot of the limitations allowed me to be a bit more creative with how I was doing things because I wasn't so focused or relying on prints or crazy colors to kind of speak. I was sort of focusing more on shape and allowing the materials to speak for themselves. Yeah, I was just saying I completely agree. And, you know, as I learned more about natural dyeing, I realized with pH modifications and all of, you know, the these new tools at my fingertips, you actually can get a wide spectrum of color. You can pretty much get any color you can imagine with natural materials. And I think it was through that early process where I started to change my value standards and now, you know, expanding it, I'm able to realize, wow, I've kind of come back to some of these new colors that I wasn't able to achieve as I was first starting out and kind of had these really extreme limitations. So what inspired you after thesis to start Fiberhouse Collective? What was the turn of events that made you decide that this was the path you wanted to take career-wise? Yeah, well, I started working with Manufacture New York as the director of programming and education and expanding um, my reach and connecting with tons of different technologists and textile folks and designers and bringing them in to teach classes and workshops. And I was also at the time starting this um, project called Artifact Textiles with a partner, Adriana, at the time. And we were partnering with designers and creating custom textiles for them and trying to show the hands behind the garment and spread the reach and get different designers, especially small scale designers that were working locally to rethink what kind of materials they might want to use. And through this process, I was a little disheartened. I realized that a lot of different designers were happy to take the textiles, but they weren't necessarily sharing the story. And through this, you know, traditional fashion system, it was really hard to integrate some of the um, changes that we were trying to make. So I took a step back and I kind of reevaluated what I was doing and how I could have the best impact. And that's kind of where Fiberhouse Collective came from. And I also started working at a place called Genspace. It was a community bio lab. And I started meeting different scientists and technologists and learning all these amazing things, started exploring the world of mycology and mushrooms and started closing that loop even further, realizing we could um, decompose textiles and started it, it really opened my mind. And at that point, in that moment, I was like, I think 
that's when Fiber House, Fiber House Collective really was born. And it's through this integration and this connection to both biological design, but also social justice and farming, I was really able to explore handcraft from soil to soil. We really started to make, remake, and un- unmake together. Wow. It's really cool to hear you talk about collaborating with scientists and the ways in which it opened your practice up to so many new possibilities. Can you talk about some of the early discoveries that you came across when you were collaborating with them? Yeah, I realized, I realized, I kind of started looking at textiles in a different way. I started thinking of not just plants and animals, but also microbes and fungi and started looking at, say, indigo on the molecular scale. I started thinking about what's actually the chemical shifts that are happening. And I realized through this partnership with scientists, artists and designers can really, you know, create new solutions to problems that we necessarily couldn't have thought about on our own. When I started to break from my silo and my bubble and connect with scientists and also scientists started to break from their bubble, it was this really powerful moment and these really amazing conversations. And I started thinking about things in a completely different way, especially some of the research we're doing now where we're trying to get... Um, different mushrooms to decompose textile waste, especially cotton and hemp and different cellulose-based fibers. I would have never gotten to where I am today with that research without those conversations with scientists and learning from also just citizen scientists, people that were interested in science but maybe didn't have a formal background. Interesting. And can you go a bit more in depth about the process of decomposing textiles and the role that the mushrooms play in the process? Yeah. So what we've been doing is creating almost a new strain of different um, edible mushrooms that um, are used to basically eating or decomposing cotton. So we're creating these kind of cotton teas. And then we're able to inoculate, which really means we're just getting the mycelium, which is like the root system of mushrooms, to grow on these cotton textiles or raw cotton. And slowly over time, the mushrooms or the mycelia eat, starts eating away or, you know, um, digesting the fabric. And then at the end, we're left with a fruiting body, which is these mushrooms growing out of what's once what once was just a regular cotton fabric. So is that where the edible aspect comes from after the mushrooms have disintegrated the textiles, you can then eat them? Well, in theory, um, so if the cotton was, you know, untreated, no chemical processes after, so a lot of the cotton that we're working with, and, you know, we're working with natural dyes, so different, um, especially cochineal, which is actually the sugars help aid in the um, decomposition process, you you could eat the mushrooms mm-hmm. after. You could turn your old clothing into a food source, right? But the problem is a lot of the clothing that we have in our textile waste streams, a lot of clothing that's ending up in landfills or, you know, we want to get rid of, have a lot of, you know, synthetic dyes and chemicals um, in their processing. So if you were to grow mushrooms on them, you couldn't then go eat them because the mushrooms are all take also taking in some of those, you know, things that we wouldn't want to consume consume. So we've also gotten really interested in the idea of micro remediation. So mushrooms being able to remediate not only soil, but also, fabrics that have chemicals that we don't want to integrate into our soil-to-soil system. That's very, very interesting. Very interesting. You were kind of talking earlier about how you are 
fostering the agricultural systems that you kind of want to see reflected in your practice and you're collaborating with farmers in your area. Can you talk about what it's like to collaborate and how you've been successful thus far, given that you're in an urban area? Sure. Well, we're based right in at the moment in Brooklyn, New York, you know, in a very urban environment. But people don't realize that within just, you know, 100 miles away, just a few hours away, there's tons of fiber farmers, sheep farmers. And a lot of farmers right now are struggling to, you know, get their product out there to get the wool out there. There's a lot of farms that just have, you know, um, sheds or farms full of wool, but not really finding a way to connect to customers or, you know, the fashion industry. And it's kind of a shame because the industry, the fashion industry is right here and they're getting wool from really far away. not sure about, you know, the ethics or the full transparency in that supply chain. So a lot of our earlier was really trying to connect the farmers to designers. And now we're still really interested in that. We have a residency program and our first resident was um, a farmer in Germantown, New York who re, um, recently inherited a, a, a whole flock of American caracool sheep and was figuring out how maybe they could use different felting techniques to create products that they could then sell their wool to, to a whole new um, group of consumers. It's really interesting to hear you point to the challenges of farmers connecting with and finding markets within the fashion industry. And it kind of makes me think about um, sort of like what role we play in the grand scheme of like fashion in the fashion industry as natural dyers and farmers because we work within very particular limitations. I guess I'm, I'm wondering, what do you see the future of collaborations with people who are working in the realm of farming and natural textiles what do you see within the future of that whole community of people sort of teaming up with the fashion industry which is a really big industry that is really the root of a lot of the problems that make clothing and garment production bad for the environment, if that makes sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Such a great question. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge, right? Because as I was saying earlier, trying to fit within the current model, it, it doesn't align. And there are a lot of problems. And, you know, also the price point of making completely handmade garments and working with ethical farmers and kind of pay everyone fairly creates products that in the end are sometimes way more expensive than intended, especially when you're factoring, you know, retailer markups. So it is quite a challenge, especially for small designers who are starting out or even I mean even even larger corporations that are trying to hit these bottom lines and I, I do believe that you know as more policymakers cre- um, create mandates and corporations have to think rethink the way they're doing things and they have to think in this closed loop, closed loop model I'd like to hope that there's more of an opening for some of these um, techniques that or you know methods that we're thinking about but I do sometimes think there is a power in working outside of the industry and creating this model to kind of share what can be done. I do think it needs to be smaller hubs, more local models, and not necessarily, you know, this. it's hard when you're thinking of your supply chain that's going to so many different countries before it gets to someone. You know, when something's made in one place, it isn't really made there. It's made in so many different places. So if you can localize your production and, and really understand where everything's come from, that's when you can create these closed loops much easier. So in some ways, it 
seems so far off and so complicated compared to what we're doing now. But if you think about it, it actually can be really simple. It's just it really is a paradigm shift. It's a new way of thinking about things. You know, when we think about scaling up natural dyes, okay, well, then how are we farming them? If we're, you know, doing this industrial scale farming where it's just, you know, monocropping different um dies is that really a solution no i think it really you do have to think about carbon farming and regenerative um farming models so it really is asking people to rethink a lot about how we make and buy clothing right and people also can't be buying so much because these price points aren't realistic if we can't make something in an ethical and sustainable way at that at these um price points and maybe we have to rethink what that means and maybe we're mending more and maybe we're buying less and uh, we're subsidizing different kinds of farms. Hmm. I, I'm I'm excited to see so many people, such as yourself and and other um, textile enthusiasts, um, whether they are natural dyers or they're advocating for sustainable fashion. And I'm really interested in seeing like what the next ten to twenty years is going to look like as we sort of like break down these like barriers and walls and like keep making these systems because something that I've noticed is there are a lot of really small systems, but there, there, there are a lot of them. And so something that I'm learning as I continue to do this research and and talk to other farmers and other fiber collectives that um, there's a lot and and they're connecting with one another and, and things are happening. So I'm excited to see how how things are going to look in the years to come. But um, can you kind of talk about how you've been able to sort of sustain this practice? I know that this requires a lot of legwork. Um, it requires a lot of financial responsibility um, in addition to just how costly it can be to create things sustainably. Can you kind of talk about maybe some of the challenges, if any, of supporting this practice? Of course, there's always so many challenges. Yeah. Um, when I first started Fiber House, again, I was working at Genspace, and then I started working at the Rockefeller University in their outreach department and, you know, teaching different public school students all about science and engaging um, that outreach lab with more biodesign projects. And that's where I started a lot of this mushroom research and this micro-remediation work. And so I was getting, you know, I was having a paycheck. It wasn't just Fiber House alone. It was Fiber House in a lot of ways was, you know, a lot of these connections bringing, um, other um, educators into the space, but then also partnering with like-minded spaces all around. And it was more just as a workshop model, just teaching different workshops when I could and when I could connect with other people who could. But recently, about over the past eight or nine months, it's kind of grown into this full-time thing. And it really, I did have to think, what could this model look like? How could I sustain myself and also sustain this practice and, you know, help other people sustain their practices? Because that's ultimately what we're trying to do here. And I realized a lot of our research could feed into new curriculums for workshops. So we started making these workbooks um, to share some of what we were learning about and thinking about and what we were teaching at the workshop. So also so people could take home what they learned and really not like have it be a one-time moment, but a, a way to actually but they can integrate it into their practice and into their lives. And through that, we also started making, now since Fibrous has been my full-time focus, I've been able to start doing more one-on-one sessions. So connecting with people, um, maybe if they took a workshop or took a different workshop and they're like, well, I understand indigo or natural dyeing a little bit or felting or weaving, but how can I kind of 
think about this in a holistic way for my business or my life or my art practice. And so through these one-on-one sessions, we're able to focus with people. It's um, it kind of like, it's not really consulting and it's not really education. It's really this kind of new, exciting thing. And it's one of my favorite things to do. And so these one-on-one sessions, these workshops and the research and also the residency program is all able to kind of fuel itself and work in its own way as this closed loop system that is able to create, you know, a growing movement and sustain myself and uh, expand what Fiber House is trying to do. That's so cool. Can you talk about how you're creating the environments that you're creating within your collective, how you're collaborating with people and the workshops that you do? Yeah. So we're really thinking about whether you're an artist, designer, educator, student, crafter, curious consumer, you know, the information in these hands-on lessons is really for everyone. Um, you know, everyone can, needs to be a part of closing the loop and closing the gap. So it's, this is not one, you know, person that we're really working with specifically, but it's the, the collective is like a loose connection of, you know, different educators, different textile folks, different fiber folks, different farmers, you know, scientists that are interested in joining the conversation. And um, especially through the residency program, as we're able to invite people to come stay for a week in our space in Brooklyn, we're able to have these kind of, you know, we offer two private sessions, we're able to kind of expand how cloth that heals can affect many people's lives. So that's really what we're trying to do at Fiber House Collective is create cloth that heals not just like the planet or the animals, but the people involved. So in some ways it's like this art therapy, you know, it's like it's, these processes are extremely meditative and relaxing. And if we can integrate them into our own lives, we can also reshape um, the way we interact with handcraft in our day to day. And for me, it's been a really um, restorative process. Wow. That's really beautiful. And are you working on any new projects that you would like to share with our listeners? Yes, we are. I'm really excited about this um, Kickstarter campaign that we're about to launch. So a lot of, as I was saying, a lot of what we've been doing are these workshops with partnering spaces, but, you know, maybe at local farms, maybe in the city, but our reach is pretty small. We're not able to kind of have the conversations with as many people as we want to be having. So we want to launch this video series, this online video series, and we want these videos to be completely free. A lot of what we're trying to do is create access to this information. We don't want there to be any barrier to entry. So the videos will be free, but then we're also going to be having these seasonal kits. So we're starting with a flower dyeing kit, so people will be able to um, get local flowers and a small piece of fabric to create their own flower dyeing. And then they'll have the video, and we'll have like a resource list so people can not just have this be a one-time thing, but they can then do this in the future. So through these seasonal kits and these videos, hopefully we'll spread our reach and kind of grow the movement. That's the hope. That's so awesome. It sounds like we connected at the perfect time. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, I, I really hope that this works out. You know, we're, we, I have ideas, you know, we've been doing making a lot of mushroom paper with some of the mushrooms that have been growing out of, you know, our micro-remediation work. So we want to teach mushroom paper. We want to make a lot of the packaging out of mushrooms. That's another thing. And thinking about, okay, well, if we're sending out kits, what are these kits made out of? So it's a whole new question about sourcing. It's not just textiles, but it's a lot of, you know, paper goods. So not just teaching people how to make their own paper, but other ideas for creative reuse, like felted hats and accessories, maybe making your own loom. I just, yeah, I have so many ideas for different kits and the ideas that they'll be seen so it won't be a whole um, swath of kits that we're needing to source for, but we're going to be highlighting different farms and different um, suppliers with different kits that are just temporary. So it also creates kind of like 
um, only small window to get these different um, kits, but all the videos will grow and stay in the same place and hopefully we'll start building out an archive. And when are you starting this Kickstarter? <laughs> hopefully by uh, November uh, next week. I think it'll be launching by um, Thanksgiving. And hopefully, you know, we, we want to have everyone have an opportunity to get the kits. And some, we're also having these T-shirts that we're going to be offering, natural dye T-shirts used on um, um, reclaimed shirts and some different um, cars. And we hope that they'll be there by the holidays. But if they're not there by the holidays, you'll be able to, like, have send them over to the person that you're giving the gift to for, you know, by the new year. And where can people go on the internet to find your work and to support your Kickstarter campaign? Oh, yes. Well, you can find us at Fiberhouse Collective on Instagram. We're always trying to stay active there, share what we're up to in the stories and through our posts. And then also on FiberhouseCollective.com. And we also have a newsletter. And it's only like a monthly newsletter. And then we share different workshops that are going on. We'll be sharing links to the Kickstarter and how people can get involved through that. Well, it's been amazing talking to you and hearing your journey, and I'm excited for you and this new chapter that you're opening with this Kickstarter campaign. But before you go, we do have one question that we ask everyone who joins the podcast, and that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with artists, weavers, or textile enthusiasts? Yeah, I guess I'll just say look in your backyard for your materials. A lot of what's been exciting is just going on walks around the neighborhood. You know, we're in a very industrial area. People don't think of this as a, a place where you can connect with nature, but we're able to find tons of dye stuff, you know, amaranth and pokeberry growing through the cracks below the big highway above. And so just connecting with what's around you and finding ways to use what's nearby as inspiration instead of seeking things far off and far away where you don't know where they're coming from. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your journey and your wisdom with us. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for the work that you're doing. You know, I, I think our journeys are always, uh, we're, we're on the journey. We're on the journey together. <laughs> That's a wrap. If you're interested in seeing more of Nika's work and to support her approaching Kickstarter campaign, you can find links in the show notes at www.chisyarn.com slash episode dash 90. Next week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Heidi of Early Futures. Heidi is an archivist and practitioner of iron mineral pigments that she extracts from landscapes mostly in the Western United States. Her pigments can be used for an array of making mediums, such as in an art practice or for medicinal properties. I'm especially excited to have her on the podcast because she offers a unique perspective in the realm of nature and making. So I'm looking forward to talking with her about the historical significance and science behind her work. So stay tuned next week for that episode. And until next time, happy weaving. Happy weaving.